Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here. So glad to be with you once again here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Now, as I'm recording this right now, we are all in quarantine right now due to coronavirus. And so I just want you to know as we go into scripture right now, there is no better place to be than opening God's word and seeking his truth to give us comfort. That's what Romans 15, 4 tells us, that we find comfort in his word. These things have been written that you may be comforted. We're told that the God of comfort, the God of peace, we're told in Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1, gives us the comfort so that we in return can comfort others. So as you and I gather in different parts of the world at different times to download this podcast, and as we're in this pandemic right now, many people are scared. Some people are losing their jobs. Some people, unfortunately, have had a loved one who has passed away. And we just want you to know here on the podcast that we are praying for our nation. We're praying for people in the world. We're praying that God's comfort will be there for our medical professionals, our elected officials. Won't you join with me according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that we pray for our elected officials and that we honor the work that they're doing for the people, not for themselves, not for their own interests, not for their political uh, ideology, but simply to bear witness to people who are caring for humanity. And so I just want you guys to know that I love you. And as we now look at this period of time in Jesus's life, this is a critical time. Talk about suffering. I mean, right now, what suffering many of us are going through, some more than others, uh, we look at our Savior and we look at here on, on today's podcast, Podcast 109, And we see event 10 here, the course to the cross. Jesus was just convicted by Pontius Pilate. Maybe he was convicted by the Jewish leaders, but now by Pontius Pilate, and he's going to be crucified. So that's where we pick things up here in Matthew chapter 27, verses 31 through 32, Mark 15, 20 through 21, Luke 23, verses 26 through 32. And then John has a brief little remark here. And John 19, verse 17. So as always, here's one big narrative so we can kind of see the sequential order and get a chronological perspective of where things line up in the life of Jesus. So here in Matthew 27, verse 31, it says, And when they had mocked Jesus, they stripped him of the robe, meaning they uh, stripped him to the short military cloak that he had, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. So the soldiers, they stripped Jesus from the robe that they placed on him, remember, to remove any dignity of him. And, they, and then they released him in his peasant clothes, and he's severely beaten, right? No sleep, been betrayed, was been mocked for hours by Jewish people, by Gentiles. His disciples were not there. And so his body at this point in time is utterly torn apart due to the flogging. And Luke 23, verse 26 says, and as they led Jesus away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Now, this particular area that Simon was coming from is around the Mediterranean Sea in North Africa, near the area of Libya. 
And we're told that the Romans grabbed him because in Matthew 27, verse 32, this says they compelled Simon, this man, doesn't even mention his name, to carry his cross. Mark 15, 21 says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And notice it says, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. So Simon's two sons must have been very well known to be mentioned by Mark later on in life. So there's a lot of historians, a lot of people say that Simon, particularly his kids, were early Christian leaders after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is probably mentioning, because Mark mentions the two names here as the first gospel that maybe supports that very idea. Now, when you go back though, and it says that they laid on him the cross now, remember, this was the, the patabulum. This was the wooden beam, the cross beam that they laid on Simon. And the reason for this was because, remember, at this point in time, Jesus was too weak from the beatings and scourging to carry the cross beam. The deep lacerations that Jesus endured, that he was suffering from, were so bad that even parts of his organs were exposed. And the, and the appreciable loss of blood that caused him to go into hypovolemic shock and the severe dehydration that he was going through. Remember the night before with hematitrosis, massive migraines, his capillaries were bursting instead of uh, perspiring, sweating. He has blood coming out of his sweat glands. So his body is very bruised and fragile and he's on the verge of death already before the cross. And so Simon is grabbed by the Roman soldiers and he's used to help Jesus go to the cross. Now, obviously, as I'm looking at the chronological order of this account, historically speaking, looking at the historicity of Jesus according to the gospel accounts, there is some spiritual overtone here. Because we know that at, at some point in our life, and Jesus, remember, had already been teaching the disciples to, to pick up their cross, to carry their cross, to deny themselves. And Simon is here in Jerusalem coming from North Africa because he wants to participate in Passover because he himself is a Jew. Now, remember, he's looking forward to the Messiah. Now, could you imagine? He's not looking to encounter the Messiah this way, where he is literally carrying the Messiah's cross to be crucified. I mean, think about that and the impact. Now, in Luke chapter 23, verses 27, 32, it says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning, and they're lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, this, these are interesting phrases that Jesus is saying to many people in the crowd on his way to Golgotha. Now, this phrase, Daughters of Jerusalem, this is a reference to the people of Jerusalem particularly. This, is, this goes back to many prophets, particularly in Jeremiah 6, verse 2 and Micah 4, 8. So Jesus is taking scripture and he's responding to the people as they're weeping for him. And he's saying to them as he's quoting scripture and referring to them as Daughters of Jerusalem, he's telling them not to weep for him but actually to weep for themselves because the impending judgment that will fall upon them is going to be huge because of their rejection of the Messiah. Remember, just a few hours before this, the Jewish people continued to chant before Pontius Pilate, crucify him, let his blood, if we're going to be found guilty, let it be so not just on us, but on our children's children, on multiple generations. So Jesus is saying, judgment is going to befall 
your people for rejecting me. And you can take a look at Jeremiah 9, 17 through 19. And then here in verse 29, for he says, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, what he's saying here is that it will be best at this point in time because of the judgment, the impending judgment, not to have children and to have them also suffer greatly as a result. Go back again to Jeremiah 16, verses one through four. And then he says in verse 30, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So what Jesus is saying here, and this is interesting, remember, put in perspective, he has enough strength where he's quoting scripture. He's showing them to take comfort, knowing that he's doing what the Bible has said, the prophets have said that he will, that he will endure. And of course, he will overcome it. And I also love the fact that Jesus, again, is focusing more on their needs rather than his own. So here, when he's talking about the wood is, you know, when, it's, when the wood is green and then happens to go dry, he's referencing the imminent bloodshed that's going to fall upon Jerusalem. And what that's going to do is it's going to cause many to want to die rather than endure the adversity. So even right now, when there's a somewhat of a peace with Rome, eventually after his death and resurrection, there's going to be massive persecution among the Jewish Christians. And not only that, but then many of the Herodians, many of the Zealots are going to go at war with one another and they're going to fight with the Romans and the Romans with the Jews. And we know that ultimately it's going to lead to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And then we're told here in verse 32 in Luke 23 that there were two other people and they were criminals who were led away to be put to death with Jesus. Now, when you study first century, this time period of the Romans, there's a lot of writings about them crucifying thousands of people every year. So to have these public crucifixions was very common. But the difference here was that Jesus was one of these criminals. And also this was during the time where Passover was about to take place. And so this was a powerful way to strike fear in the Jews, to show them as many of them were coming from different parts of the Roman empire, that this is what happens to people who mess with us. And now we transition into event 11 as we now look at the crucifixion. Again, these are all the different events that have taken place on Friday of Passion Week. And here we see this recorded in Matthew 27, 33 through 44, Mark 15, 22 through 32, Luke 23, 33 through 43, and John 19, verses 18 through 27. So let's pick things up here in John chapter 19, and I'll read verses 19 through 22. And then I'll get these other passages and the other gospels into one uh, big narrative. So it says here that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek, meaning it was covering all the primary languages. Verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. So it was very routine for people to write out the charges on a tablet or, or a, a titulus uh, for all people to see as to why they're receiving this type of punishment. Now, the Jews didn't like what Pilate had written regarding Jesus, but it was kind of his way, I believe, of getting back at the Jews 
and using the crucifixion of Jesus as a way to publicize his actual hate for the Jews. Jumping now to Luke chapter 23, 33 through 34, it says, And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, or Latin, Calvaria, or Golgotha, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Mark 15, 25 says, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. So this depiction of Jesus being crucified in between two criminals, faithfully, I believe, represents his sacrifices for mankind when you see in Isaiah 53, 9 through 12. So again, there's another spiritual overtone that we see here that Jesus is the mediator that we know. He's the advocator. We're told this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 4 and 5 and 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And here he is sacrificing his life in between two criminals. Now, of course, if you know the story, one repents and comes to saving faith when the other one doesn't and rejects. Again, that's another sign that there will be people who believe and there will be people who disbelieve. Now, in verse 34, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, here we know that Jesus was sinless, that he laid down his life for the sins of mankind, but he committed no sinful acts. There was no guile within him. We're told throughout scripture, this, this is very important, by the way, my friends, this is known as the impeccability of Jesus. To believe that Jesus was sinful is a heretical teaching. It is not according to Orthodox Christianity. So Jesus, who's sinless, who had no need to confess his sins before, before God, before he's crucified, but rather, as I mentioned before, as mediator, what he does here in verse 34 is he's crying out to the Father on behalf of mankind. Listen to what John 19, 23 through 24 says. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. Mark 15, part of 24 says, to decide what each should take. Then back to John 19, but the tunic was seamless, meaning it was a valuable piece of garment woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, and then Matthew 27 verse 36 tells us, Then the soldiers sat down and kept watch over Jesus there. Now, this is recorded by the Gospels because these acts that the Romans did, they were prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 18. This casting of the lots, what was happening here was that the Roman soldiers, they would strip their victims of everything and they would crucify them naked. And then they would roll the dice, so to speak, to see who would win the property of criminals being executed. So it was a way for them to make extra money or to have certain belongings. So you can imagine that they'd come home and say, hey, look what I got after crucifying somebody today. And so they would take their personal possession. So that was prophesied in Psalm 22. And then in Luke 23, 35 through 38 says, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed, meaning they sneered at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked Jesus coming up and offering him sour wine, that's a sedative drink, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. 
So this scoffing and this mocking, it points to the spiritual blindness of the people. If you go way back in John chapter 3, verse 19, that's exactly what Jesus said to Nicodemus. And then Luke 23, 39 through 42 records, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That means new creation. So again, as I was mentioning earlier, here you have the two criminals and they embody the spiritual warfare and they speak to the people, I believe the two types of polar opposite types of people who who have these different views, these polar opposite views that were held uh, about Jesus in that time, in that day. Now, if you go back earlier in the day, both of these criminals, remember, they were mocking Jesus in Matthew 27, 44, and Mark 15, verse 32, but now one of them has a change of heart. He changes his mind about Christ, and what does he do with it? He repents. Notice he says, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus promises this criminal eternal life with him. And then in John 19, 25 through 27, standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother, and his mother's sister, Salome, that's in Mark 15, verse 40. Mary, the wife of Clopas, who is the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph uh, in Matthew 27, verse 56. And Mary Magdalene, who's mentioned in John 21 through 18. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, nothing is mentioned about the death of Joseph, that is, Jesus' stepfather. But as the eldest son, Jesus was responsible for the care and the well-being of his mother. And so many commentaries believe by not mentioning Joseph here and looking to John to take care of Mary, it's because Joseph at some point in time has passed away. Now, we don't know if that's the case. More than likely, I believe that it is. But, but beyond that, the important thing here is who is by the side of Jesus's family and some of the other followers and other family members of Jesus and who's there at the crucifixion of Jesus, only one disciple, and that is John. And the amazing thing about that is when you look at the course in time after the, the resurrection of Jesus, he writes the gospel of John, he writes three letters. And he also receives the revelation from Jesus at the end of his life when he's the only remaining apostle. And I believe one of the reasons is because what you see here, this obedience, this care and love and determination that John had, he laid at the bosom of Jesus. He was there with Jesus through so many things. He didn't argue and fight with him like other disciples did. He wanted to care for what was important to Jesus because it was important to John. And that speaks volumes of the kind of man that John was. Now we turn to event number 12, which is the death of Jesus. And this is recorded in Matthew 27, 45 through 56, Mark 15, 33 through 41, Luke 23, 44 through 49, and John 19, verses 28 through 30. So we pick things up here in Matthew 27, where it says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So now let's put this in perspective. Jesus was crucified roughly around 9 a.m. 
So the darkness occurred from noon to 3 p.m. You can see this in Mark 15, 25, Luke 23, 44. And this darkness was a sign of God's judgment. Look at Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, or Amos 8, verse 9. So again, another spiritual overtone that's taking place in this account of Jesus. And now in verse 46, it says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sapakani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus cries out here, the moment in which he's about to die to the Father. Now remember, before casting the lots, they, that was prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 18. And now Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, verse 1 in Aramaic, as he became the sin bearer for mankind. Before that, as mediator, he was interceding and praying, Father, forgive them. Now, one thing I didn't mention before, but when you look at the present indicative tense in the Greek, Jesus is repeatedly saying, Father, forgive them. It wasn't just a one statement. So you know how sometimes you say the seven statements of Jesus. That statement actually was something that Jesus repeatedly said. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible says this, quote, The preservation of these Hebrew words shows how memorable Jesus' cry was. This is the moment Jesus shoulders the sins of humanity and recognizes the rupture of his previously unbroken communion with his Heavenly Father agony worse than his physical suffering. Jesus, as son of David, reuses David's language from Psalm 22, verse 1. He too is experiencing abandonment, but the psalm goes on to envision future hope beyond the immediate despair. Eli, my God, in Aramaic, it sounds like Elijah. If Jesus' speech was slurred or unclear, or if some of the listeners were unfamiliar with Aramaic, they would not have understood the rest of his words, end quote. So it was very clear that Jesus was quoting from Psalm 22. Verse 47 says, and some of the bystanders hearing it, they said, this man is calling Elijah. See, that's what they thought they heard. They thought they heard that Jesus was calling for Elijah. And in Hebrew, it's Eliyahu because he spoke in Hebrew. Eli, the Jews expected for Elijah to return, remember? So they're thinking that he's calling upon Elijah because it's the end of the times, it's the end of the days. So even still, many of the Jews are neglecting to see him as Messiah and they're anticipating a prophet. Well, the prophet is among them, according to Deuteronomy 18, and they don't see it. Verse 48, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, meaning cheap wine, and they put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Now, this was a wine vinegar. It was not a sedative. It was meant to keep Jesus alive. It was to help to refresh him, which was different from the wine with myrrh that the Romans earlier attempted to give Jesus when he was being crucified on the cross, Mark 15, 23. And then here in Matthew 27, verse 49, it says, But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice how John 19, verse 28, 30 says, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. This phrase, again, if you look back to what we were mentioning before, when they gave him the cheap wine, he's pointing back to Psalm 69, verse 21. And then a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine in, on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. 
So Jesus completed his task and he handed over his spirit willingly to the Father. And then Matthew 27, 51 through 54 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is at this point in time, what were the priests doing while Jesus just died? Well, the priests, they would have been offering sacrifices right around this time when the inner curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy according to Exodus 26, 33, and it was torn in two. Now, again, who did this? This was a, the very act of God. And then we're told in verse 52 in Matthew 27, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now there's much debate as to whether Matthew is the original author inspired by the Holy Spirit who gives this account, or it was later inserted sometime in church history. Uh, nonetheless, it's a precursor, I believe, of the coming rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Uh, there are good, well-respected people, friends of mine, that believe that this is fictitious, that it was inserted later in, in time. It was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I do believe that uh, this probably did occur because it points to the coming rapture that's going to take place sometime in church uh, in the church age. Now, verse 54 says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what had took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Now, Luke 23, 47 through 48 says, And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. You know, this is an amazing account because some of the Roman soldiers who I believe were beating and mocking Jesus throughout the night and into the morning, they are now witnessing these miracles and identifying that these are acts of God and they recognize that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Now, Luke 23, 49 says, and all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Matthew 27, 55 through 56 says, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And now we enter event 13, the piercing of Jesus' side. And there's only one account of this. And this is found in John 19, verses 31 through 37. John writes, Since it was the day of preparation that is based on the temple calendar, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was high, it's a very high, great day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, this is important to note because at this period of time, this was an extra uh, special time of the year. Uh, considering the fact that the Sabbath fell on the second day of the Passover festival. That was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the Romans would leave criminals to suffer, remember, on the cross, sometimes for days until they died. But considering the fact that it was Sabbath and it was drawing near, the Romans appeased the Jews because of their ceremonial laws, according to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. So the soldiers came, were told, and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. 
And so they, they, what they would do is the Roman soldiers would come along with an iron mallet and they would crush the legs so that they would no longer be able to lift themselves up in order to take in oxygen. So it would result in the criminals dying of asphyxiation. But we're told that when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So it's, if you think about it, it's truly amazing that Jesus had lasted this long. After the garden, the night before he suffered from hematitrosis, sweating of blood, he was betrayed by his disciples. He was beaten repeatedly. He was scourged. And then, of course, he was led to the cross outside of Jerusalem there. He was nailed to the cross for over six hours. He was there in, 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 in torturous pain. So one of the soldiers were told in verse 34, he comes to Jesus, he's already dead, but just to be sure, he pierces his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now this is interesting because remember the prophets foretold of the Messiah being crucified and his side being pierced. This is recorded in Psalm 22 verse 16, Isaiah 53 verse 5, Zechariah 12 verse 10. So when John records here that blood and water flowed from Jesus' side, it's because the soldier pierced, and this is why the soldier did this. Remember, the Romans were, were very highly advanced. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew the, the anatomy pretty well. They pierced Jesus' pericardium. This was the sac surrounding the heart. So when blood and water came out, that's an indication, medically speaking, that Jesus was in fact dead. Then verse 35, John writes these words, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Now here, John is referring to himself, and he's speaking these words because he says in verse 36, For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. So again, there's a lot of things that are alluding to scripture, uh, prophecy in particular. And and John is making a point here, and, and the reason why he's making the point uh, so clearly at this point in time, which he's referring to himself, is because he's saying Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's pointing to Exodus 12, verse 46, and Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, and possibly even Psalm 34, verse 20. So what, what John is connecting here is just like we as Jewish people, year after year, we take our lamb and we sacrifice a lamb and not one bone is broken according to Exodus chapter 12. Why? Because it's foreshadowing what will happen to the Messiah, to Jesus on the cross? Then not one bone would be broken. That was fulfilling prophecy. Every time a Jewish person, and we're talking in the millions, sacrificed a lamb, it was pointing to Jesus, who, who John the Baptist said, is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isn't that amazing? And he says in verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now remember, the, the Jewish people, when they read scripture, it's God speaking his word to them. So when, when John is including Zechariah 12 verse 10 here, it's God speaking to the Jewish people saying, you have done this. And when you look on him, you've realized what you have done, the sin that you've committed. And now we end the podcast on event 14, and this is the burial of Jesus. And this is recorded for us in Matthew 27, 57 through 61. Mark 15, 42 through 47, Luke 23, 50 through 56, and John 19, verses 38 through 42. So let me read Mark 15. It says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that's Friday, that is the day before the Sabbath, which is Saturday, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, let's jump to Luke 23, where it says that 
Joseph was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, now back to Mark 15, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, we're not for certain if Joseph was there present in the Sanhedrin and obviously was was adamant about, you know, condemning their voting Jesus to death, or he ex, you know, excused himself and left. We don't know that, but what's amazing here was this phrase that, that Mark mentions that he took courage, that is Joseph took courage. Right here, what we see is Joseph intercepts Jesus's body. He goes boldly and says, hey, I want his body as evening was approaching so I can give Jesus a proper burial. I like how John puts it. He says here in 19 verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible puts it like this, quote, family members would not be punished for requesting the body. For a member of the elite to request the body, however, was to take a significant risk. Unless acting officially at the behest of the Sanhedrin, he could be associated with Jesus' alleged treason, risking his own execution. Moreover, officials sometimes like to pin such charges specifically on members of the elite so that they could confiscate their property. Although Pilate does not act against Joseph, Joseph could not know that in advance. That's why his request was considered courageous." End quote. We're then told in Mark 15, 44 through 45, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether Jesus was already dead. So Pilate was shocked to hear from Joseph when he was asking for his body that Jesus had already died because many of the criminals, as I mentioned earlier, it would take days on the cross. But of course, they were breaking their legs because of Passover. They're trying to appease the Jews. And we're told in verse 45, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Pilate handing over the body of Jesus is a very unusual act. Remember, Joseph was not family. He was a member of the Sanhedrin and Jesus was crucified for sedition. Therefore, his rights for burial were forfeited by Roman law. So there's a lot of things that that are are happening here that normally would not take place. Now in John 19, 39 through 40, we're now introduced to Nicodemus, who also says uh, earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So it's very clear that the material that was used to embalm Jesus is very costly and there's a lot of it because this shows the love and loyalty that Nicodemus and Joseph had for Jesus. Now, this term that, that they bound it, meaning they took Jesus's body, which was brutally disfigured. So it was probably very hard for them to manage to embalm Jesus because of how messed up his body was. So it required delicate care by Nicodemus and Joseph, which also speaks to the delicacy that they knew what they were doing when it came to ritual and burial. Now, a lot of Jews did, but in particular, it seems that Nicodemus and Joseph uh, were very um, probably considered professionals, if you will. But so they're going through this process of cleaning and positioning Jesus's body for embalming, which again would take hours. And they were told in Mark 15, verse 46, 
And Joseph, he brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, uh, meaning in Matthew 27, verse 60, Joseph's own tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, John 19, 41 through 42 says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So a body would often decompose for a year. And then what they would do is then they would move it to its permanent ossuary. Now this term, his own tomb, on all accounts, Jesus, member was buried in the tomb of Joseph's, Joseph's family, who up to this point, uh, of course, had no need for it. Now, many within church tradition believe the location, though, of Jesus's burial is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located today. We don't know if that's true, but again, traditionally speaking, most people believe that it is. And then we're told in Luke 23, 54 through 56, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So the women had come with him from Galilee, followed one and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And Mark 15, 47 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. And then we're back to Luke 23, verse 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. This is an indication, by the way, of a delay within the decay of Jesus' body. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So this is important as we, we end now because the Sabbath was about to start as we've been mentioning. And so here, the followers of Christ, they rushed to have him buried. And this is according to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. And so the women gathered and they prepared the spices and the ointments. But then because of the Sabbath, that Saturday came upon them, uh, they rested. And so they would take the spices that they prepared and when, they were, when, and when the Sabbath was over, they would return to the tomb on Sunday to finish the burial rites, and that's the embalming of Jesus. So what Joseph and Nicodemus started, the women would come and they would finish it. So there you have it, my friends. That is Friday of Passion Week. I know that we covered a lot of ground. There was a lot of information on today's podcast. But again, hopefully as we take a chronological order and we do a proper literal hermeneutic to the life and teaching of Jesus according to the Gospels, that you get a deeper understanding, a richer understanding, a great perspective of these accounts. So as we end the burial now at this point, we'll pick things up to where we'll see what the accounts say after that, leading to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So thank you once again, my friends, for tuning in, for being faithful to this ministry, for praying for us and supporting us. If you like to drop a donation, if this has been a blessing to you, this ministry, you can go to standstrongministries.org. You can click on the button donate and you can give. This is a nonprofit ministry, so it's tax deductible. And we would greatly appreciate your prayers and your financial support. So until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.